Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Well, let's um, pray as we come to this subject and this passage that the Lord would really speak to us and encourage us this evening. Let's pray. Father, we come this evening to you in all of our weakness, acknowledging our, our need for your help, your strength, There'll be different people here this evening in different places, each requiring different amounts of uh, particular strength at this particular time. But we all acknowledge, Lord, that we all need you. And whether we're going through severe suffering at this time or whether things are actually quite comfortable and, uh, and going very well at this time, we know that at some point we will go through afflictions and we will suffer. So Lord, speak to us, prepare us. For what will come one day, help us to see that you are a good God, a loving God, and help us to put our trust and our faith in you. So speak to us this evening and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far on this series, we've been doing a lot of work on the, the why of suffering. We've looked at the questions, what is suffering and where did it come from? If God is good and he's all-powerful, then why doesn't he do something about suffering? We looked last week, why do Christians suffer if we're God's people? We belong to him. Why does he allow us to suffer? And what's the purpose of it all? But if we're going through suffering, as I know many of you are, that can come across as a little bit theoretical. Uh, yes, I understand in my, my head that um, what you're saying, but it's pretty hard to, to hold on to while I'm in so much pain. I just want the pain to stop, whether it's physical or emotional or relational, maybe. A lot of suffering we will never fully understand anyway, this side of, of glory. So the question we need to address this evening is how should we suffer? How should I think and act when I'm in the middle of it. Of course, you can't detach that question completely from uh, the why of suffering. And so as we do consider the question this evening, how we should suffer, it is in relation to the why. This weekend actually marks the, the 50th anniversary of the, the diving accident that um, left Johnny Erickson with quadriplegia. 
Uh, many of you may have read her, her books. Um, for 50 years, she's lived her life in a wheelchair, um, with carers having to do the basic things uh, for her. Since she uh, published her first book back in uh, 1976, she's uh, written many more books, um, but a few years ago she, um, she wrote this one called A Place of Healing. And the first chapter of the book is entitled Report from the Front Lines. And she writes in it this, she writes, I'm writing in the midst of my experiences, in the violence of a firefight, in the crush of circumstances, and in the vice grip of unrelenting pain. She goes on to talk about her adversary, Satan, and how he, he recognizes that total and permanent paralysis is no longer the struggle that it used to be for her. She says, he is aware that my profound disability has helped me develop the prized characteristic of needing God desperately when I wake up in the morning, and he despises that. She writes, he hates knowing that my trust in God resounds to the Father's glory. He loathes my fellowship with Christ in my suffering. And so she concludes, his full-on attack on my body, mind, and spirit, and on my friends who love me and help me. It's war, and like all war, it isn't pretty. As we saw last week, as Christians, we are called to suffer, we're called to rejoice in our sufferings and, and not be surprised by them. But that doesn't make them any the less painful. What if we don't feel able to rejoice in them? How should we suffer as a Christian? Well, the first thing I'd like to look at this evening is, is the example of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the book of 1 Peter and uh, we read this verse from chapter 3. If you suffer... For doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, what Christ achieved for us in his suffering, only he could achieve. Only he, as the perfect, sinless man, could give his life as a sacrifice so that the whole of humankind could be forgiven for their sin. And therefore, for us to be forgiven um, just means we need to repent. Uh, we need to repent of our former way of life and put our trust in him for forgiveness, as we, we saw this, this, this morning with uh, Annie professing her faith and talking about how Christ had changed her life. But we're also told that in his suffering, he left us an example to follow. So what is it that we can learn from Jesus in the way he suffered. Well, last week we looked at some of the positive consequences of suffering um, and how God can use our sufferings. Remember, we looked at the fact that uh, he uses it to refine us and to, to mature us. He uses us to, to unite us to Christ, to help us witness for Christ and to prepare us for glory. But the Bible recognizes that although there are, are positive consequences of suffering, that doesn't mean the suffering themselves are going to be a joyful experience. And in these verses, it calls us to endure suffering, to put up with it, to not let it get us down, and most importantly, not to allow it to lose our faith in God. Jesus didn't like suffering, 
He even prayed that it will be taken from him. He prayed very honestly. And we're told in Matthew's gospel, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But although he didn't want it, he didn't shirk from it. He knew it was necessary. He knew that this was his responsibility. He told the disciples what must happen when he went to Jerusalem. He told them that he must suffer, that he must die, but that he will also be raised. And he was saying, I don't want to go through with this. But he also said to his father, yet, not as I will, but as you will. And it wasn't just about the physical pain. It was about the burden of sin that he would have to carry. It was about the separation from his father that he would have to, to experience. And on the cross, he expressed that anguish. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't asking for a, a, a theological answer to, to that, that question. He knew that already. It was a cry from the heart. And he was using the words of the Psalms, in particular Psalm 22. <coughs> At his time of anguish, Jesus used the resource of the Psalms. And if we're going to follow Jesus' example, then when suffering comes our way, let's turn to the Psalms. The Psalms are full of human emotion for every situation, not just joy and thanks, but anguish and despair. There are many Psalms called Psalms of Lament in which the psalmists cry out to God in their, in their distress. There are Psalms of Thanksgiving in which the psalmist describes how he was in difficulty, but God delivered him from his suffering. So what do we learn from these psalms that might help us in the way we suffer? Well, I think the first thing we learn is that it is okay to be honest about our feelings with God. God knows our feelings anyway, so um, uh, there's no point actually trying to hide them from him. If we feel angry at our afflictions we feel angry at injustice, then take it to God. How long, O oh Lord, is the cry of the psalmist? I've already had to put up with this for many years. How many more? You can imagine Johnny Erickson crying out, how long, Lord? 50 years. How long? When are you going to bring this to an end? Have a look at um, Psalm 38 before we come to Psalm 37. Have a look at... Um, the end of that, verse 17 onwards. This is David writing and expressing just what he's feeling at this time. Verse 70 says, For I'm about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I, I'm troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. David is honest about his desperate situation. His pain is relentless. He's troubled by sin. He's enemies who hate him without reason. He's trying to do what is right, but he's being paid with injustice. And he's not sure how much longer he can carry on. And his desperate plea in verse 21 is, Lord, do not forsake me. 
Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. There's a great honesty in that, uh, in that psalm. But a common worry that Christians have when they're going through suffering, and I'm feeling like David is here, um, is, have I lost my faith? But the very fact that we are crying out to God expresses that faith that we still have in him. And in the process, we can pray that God would restore our faith, uh, our full faith in him. It's acknowledging that, that our faith comes from him in the first place. And the great thing about the Psalms is that we, we don't need to come up with our, our own words. We don't need to find different ways of expressing what we're feeling. Uh, we don't need to find our wor- words to know what exactly to ask God for. Because they're, they're all here. We can just read the Psalm as it is, and we can make it our prayer. If we don't feel God's presence or his nearness, then we can ask him to show it to us. And pray exactly what David does here. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. Those were David's words, but they can be our words as well. The French politician Simone Veil, who died a few weeks ago, was a Jew who survived Auschwitz. And she once said, if you can't love God, you must want to love God. Or at least ask him to help you to love him. Crying out to God expresses faith. And the way in which the Psalms often help also to restore our faith is thirdly, because the Psalms remind us that God is still God. And we're going to spend a bit of time on this, on this one. Nearly all the Psalms of lament, I think the only exception is um, Psalm 88, um, have a turning point where the Psalmist shifts from, from despair to hope. And it's not that he, he suddenly necessarily becomes happy, but his confidence in God and, and the joy in his heart is, is restored. And that's what we want to get to, isn't it? If we're going through suffering, if we're, we've got that feeling that God has abandoned us, we want to move out of that feeling of, of despair and have it replaced with hope. We want our lack of trust in God to be replaced by a new confidence in him. And we want our restlessness to be replaced with, with a peace in our hearts as we remember who God is. So let's turn to Psalm 37, which was read for us um, earlier, and just see how that might help us in practice. And you'll see it's quite, quite different from Psalm 38. The style is more exhortation than lament. David is in a, in a, in a better place here, and he's encouraging others who might be struggling. And the way he does that is by pointing people to God. He starts by saying, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Fret is it's a great word, isn't it? He's saying, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. And he's speaking here to those whose particular suffering is evil people who are doing him wrong. But the encouragements he he continues with could be used equally in many other situations uh, of suffering. The difficulty about preaching on how to suffer is that there are many different types of suffering, and each of them requires almost a different response to them. 
But whatever the cause of our suffering may be, as Philip Yancey um, points out in his book, uh, Where is God When It Hurts? He says there are three things that make our suffering worse. And they are fear, they're hopelessness, and it's loneliness. They're all in some ways linked, but they, they have a different emphasis. Fear is a sense that things are out of control. Out of our control, maybe we think they're out of the control of God even. It's the feeling of uncertainty. And it makes things appear worse than they actually are. When you see these contestants on um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of fear, and they're, they're having to, to lie in a tunnel um, in the dark, and they have all sorts of horrible spiders and creepy crawlies um, led into them. And uh, it's pretty horrible, it's pretty disgusting. Um, but you know it's a, a controlled environment. Uh, they're not going to let any creepy crawlies um, in there that are going to do you any serious harm. It's still somehow under control. But when we go through suffering and it feels like it is out of control and we just don't know what to expect next, we become afraid, don't we? There's fear, there's hopelessness. Hopelessness makes a person think there's just no end in sight to this suffering. It serves no purpose. Um, I just don't have the strength to keep going anymore. I don't see the point. Or loneliness. Loneliness makes a person feel they're, they're just fighting this battle on their own. Nobody really understands, nobody maybe cares, and that includes God. And I just don't have the strength to get through this on my own. Well, in this psalm, there are, there are five exhortations that are all positive, that, and there's a promise that goes with each of them. And they deal with these, these problems, fear, hopelessness, and loneliness. Fear is removed by faith. That is the greatest antidote to fear. It is trust or faith. And three of the commands here are different ways of saying trust in the Lord. The first is the most explicit. Have a look at verse three. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. The greatest struggle when we're going through tough times is the temptation to, to lose our trust in God. To think, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that either he's not good or maybe he's not in control. And um, David says here, keep trusting, keep doing good. It doesn't matter what others do. If they do something wrong, that is between them and God. But, but you just need to continue behaving in a godly way. And so trust is not a passive thing. It's actually active. And that comes out in verse uh, 5 as well. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Go out and live your life, but do it for the Lord, not for yourself. And the promises in these two verses that you will enjoy a safe pasture, you'll have a righteous reward, they're to do with knowing God, knowing the peace that comes from that. There isn't a promise of a suffering-free life. In Philippians 4, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Often these days, um, when people are told to overcome their fear and their anxiety, it's by, by removing <coughs> negative thoughts. But the peace of God is not about absence of negative thoughts. It's about the presence of God. Tim Keller writes, um, Christian peace does not start with the the ousting of, of negative thinking. He says, if you do that, you may simply be refusing to face how bad things are. That's one way to calm yourself, he writes, by refusing to admit the facts. But it will be a short lived peace. Christian peace doesn't start that way. It's not that you stop facing the facts, but you get a living power that comes into your life and enables you to face those realities, something that lifts you up over and through them. And in verse 7, it's uh, it's getting at that in some ways. It says, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. To be still before the Lord is to is not to to be afraid or anxious or impatient, but to trust that the Lord is in control and will act in his way and in his timing, even if we can't see that. This psalm was one we we use frequently in the prayer meetings, if some of you remember when we had the the building project. Um, When we had to remind ourselves many times not to fret because of those who were using evil means to oppose us, but just to wait patiently for the Lord, to trust in him. Hopelessness is removed by hope. The extent to which something appears hopeless depends on what we think is the answer to our problem. For many people, the only thing that will give them hope in their suffering is for that suffering to end. In the book... Um, I mentioned earlier that by Johnny Erickson. She, she recounts a conversation she had with a, a guy called Lloyd, um, who was also wheelchair-bound, and uh, like herself, had struggled with big healing crusades that they, they both attended in the past. And uh, she told him about one that she'd gone to, and uh, how it was when she was younger. She, she left at the end. Uh, she said there was another 30 or so uh, people in their wheelchairs, um, all looking just quite disappointed, and just quite confused. And she thought to herself, something's just not quite right here. Um, and she asked herself, is this the only way to deal with suffering? Trying desperately to remove it. And uh, she resolved um, this problem with verse 4 in this psalm, um, which says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The ironic thing is that's a verse that is often used by people to, to demand from God whatever they want, um, often an end to suffering. Um, the second part of this verse becomes the important part that people focus on, so getting whatever they want, and then the first part almost becomes a means to an end. So if I have to delight in the Lord to, to get that, also be it. Um, but Johnny explained how she focused on the first part Um, and embarked on this quest to delight herself in the Lord. Uh, And that was an end in itself. 
And she said, uh, uh, she writes here, I started reading the Bible more and praying and asking God to reveal himself. I asked him to show me his heart, give me his passion for the lost, keep me from temptation, help me be a better witness. I didn't center on what God could do for me, but how I could please him. I kept putting my wants and wishes in check and instead made certain my goal was simply to enjoy the Lord being the Lord. And she, she writes, because I delighted myself in God, he miraculously replaced my little private list of wants and wishes with a list of his own. His desires became mine. And what are his desires? That the gospel go forth, that the kingdom be advanced, that the earth be reclaimed as rightfully his, that the lost get saved, that his glories be made known. And she finished, that's when it hit me, Lord, she, she says to him. My wheelchair was the key to seeing all this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So she said, here I sit, glad that I've not been healed on the outside, but glad that I've been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. Now that's a tough thing to say, isn't it? And that's a, an amazing place to get to. But her hope had come from the new purpose she had in her life. But ultimately our hope comes from the knowledge that one day we will go to be with the Lord. Those, as it says here in verse 9, who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. As Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. That's a promise not just about enjoying ourselves and the new restored earth where there, there's no more pain or, or suffering, but it's about being in the presence of God. Which is linked to the third issue that makes suffering worse, and that is loneliness. Loneliness is replaced by love. We all respond to suffering in different ways, don't we? I think um, for some it will be a need just to, to offload on someone, to have somebody they can continually confide in. For others it may be just to retreat, retreat into to, to a bulk, to curl up. The sort of hedgehog approach, if you like. And whichever way we take, there can be a sense of loneliness and suffering. And this is where the church has a valuable role to play. Um, to know you're being cared for and prayed for um, by your Christian brothers and sisters has a tremendously powerful effect, as uh, many of you here will testify. But what we need to know also is God's presence, isn't it? Okay, God may have promised that I will go to be with him one day. But what we want to know when we're going through suffering is, where is he now? right when I need him. If he's not going to stop my pain, at least I want to know that he understands it. At least I want the strength to get through it. And as we saw earlier from, from Psalm 38, it ends with the plea from David, um, Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me my Lord and my Savior. And that is a perfectly valid prayer to pray when we are feeling lonely in our suffering. It's also helpful to turn in the, in the Bible to passages which reassure us of God's presence at all times, even when we might not feel it. 
such as Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Or Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is not promising a pain-free life. But that when we do pass through the waters, when we do walk through the darkest valley, we don't do it alone. And it's not just the fact that he's there, it's the fact that he's there because he loves us. And so the place we keep coming back to in this series is the cross. On the cross, Jesus was separated from the one with whom he had been in that intimate relationship from the beginning of time. Although he had followers at the foot of the cross, the one whose love he sought more than anyone, his father, had turned his face away. And that was for our sakes. Jesus willingly went through that loneliness so we would know that we are not alone, that we are loved. And we seek to remind ourselves of that love as we read his word. And we seek to experience that love as we pray for his Holy Spirit to fill us with that love. Faith, hope, and love. These are the three things that mark the life of the Christian and which will help us in our suffering. So I'm going to finish with a few verses from, from Romans which sum up these three things. Romans 5. It's there on the screen in front of you. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. What I'd like to, to do now is um, to, to pray in what we've just been looking at and, and hearing. It'd be good to do that just in small groups around where, where you are. Um, pray what you've heard. Maybe God's put something in your heart you just like to reflect in, in prayer. But also, just, if you're able to, just share your sufferings with those in your group. Um, they may be different sufferings. They may be physical ones. They may be emotional. They, they may be spiritual. But um, maybe just share what you are going through at this time. Um, they may feel insignificant to you. But... Um, just because they're insignificant compared to some major sufferings that others are going through doesn't mean that they're insignificant to God. So share in your group. If you would like to come and be prayed for at the front, um, there'll be a couple of us uh, here who are very happy to pray for. If you'd like to pray on your own, very happy to do that. Just come forward to the front and we can pray for you as well. But let's just spend a bit of time now just praying. Um, we're all needy in some ways, so let's share our needs and ask God for his help at our time of need. Let's, let's pray. you can start to bring your prayers to a close. 
And we're going to come to stand to sing our final hymn. These are the words of the second verse, which are hopefully relevant to all of us. Since Jesus is with you, do not be afraid. Since he is your God, do not be dismayed. He'll strengthen you, guard you, and help you to stand, upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand. Let's all stand to sing. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen.